Peoria City Council member Denise Jackson says she's not necessarily opposed to a carbon capture pipeline in the first district, but she does have concerns. We just want to make sure that we can have the safest and the healthiest uh, environment and community as possible. Find out more about the current status of the proposal just ahead on All Things Peoria. Good afternoon, I'm Jody Holtz. Coming up, WCBU's Tim Shelley interviews Denise Jackson about the ongoing conversations around a carbon capture pipeline in South Peoria. And to learn how the Pekin High School volleyball team is contributing to the fight against breast cancer. This is our big highlight off the court. Plus, why Peoria's famous 19th century orator Robert Ingersoll struck up a friendship with socialist Eugene V. Debs. Those stories, plus local news just ahead. This is WCBU's All Things Peoria on 89.9 FM in WCBU.org. Support for WCBU and WCBU.org comes from the General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. Flying PIA supports the local economy and is the local option to travel for business or pleasure. Trips begin and end at Peoria International Airport. Details at flypia.com. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria, and I'm your host, Jody Holtz. Thanks for starting off the week with me here on your Monday afternoon. News that a carbon capture pipeline could run through South Peoria has raised a lot of eyebrows in recent months. Denise Jackson represents the first district that would be directly impacted by pipeline construction, and she has some concerns she'd like to see addressed. In this interview with WCBU's Tim Shelley, Jackson lays out what she wants Peoria residents to know. Well, since we heard about it, Tim, back in February, um, I have been kind of collaborating with the Sierra, Sierra Club and the uh, Central Illinois Healthy Alliance, uh, just in terms of trying to raise awareness and get the word out to the public about uh, what this kind of project is and what it uh, potentially could mean for uh, the city of Peoria, particularly the South Side. So we have just basically been trying to uh, disseminate, pass out information, inform residents so that they uh, will learn about uh, these kinds of projects uh, and, as I said earlier, the potential impact. Uh, so we've um, we're, we've scheduled uh, we have scheduled one public meeting uh, May twenty second at Carver Center at uh, six o'clock p.m. So uh, we're just inviting, encouraging people to come out, get as much information as they can, uh, because these kinds of projects, uh, I'm not so much opposed to it. Uh, When BioUrgia came to Peoria April 3rd, they were uh, gracious in meeting with us. And uh, at that time, we were informed by them that they uh, had not signed an agreement with um, anyone at that time. And they were going to kind of uh, consider their options and uh, hopefully we'll have an agreement towards the last quarter of the year. Okay. So what do you want people to know about these now? I, I know like in Mississippi, for example, that example is often brought up with the uh, pipeline rupture in uh, 2020. And uh, it was a very rural area. So about 40 people were hospitalized uh, due to that. And it's mainly because, uh, you know, when carbon dioxide is released in high amounts, it can cause asphyxiation and uh 
that that seems to be the main concern that that's brought up here in Peoria as well with people just just concerned about the safety of it. Well, we understand that you know businesses or there's there's these federal incentives, uh, but we moving forward as uh, as companies seek to 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 do projects and and to uh, you know create improvements at facilities. Uh, we we want them to at least keep the um, concerns of the people uh, who live nearby uh, in in and as part of their considerations. This is the first project that I've been made aware of that would be in a densely popla- populated area. We're not just talking about the south side of Peoria. We've got East Peoria right across the bridge. We've got Creevecore. We've got downtown Peoria. We've got a whole region. Uh, that could potentially be impacted should should something arise. Uh, we hope that would never happen, but um, we just want to make sure that that residents have information. Uh, the mayor issued her uh, report a couple of months ago, the social racial equity and social justice findings and and it talks a lot about disparities among blacks and whites, and we've known about these as African-Americans for some time, but they actually went out and and did some data research. And so it talks about disparities in everything from transportation to housing to employment and, of course, health. And black Americans, particularly those here in in the Peoria area, are some of the worst uh, in in terms of when it comes to health conditions. Uh, we, We suffer from asthma. We suffer from all kinds of ailments. And so uh, we want companies to take those kinds of considerations uh, in in mind when they are doing business. If there's any way you can do things that are uh, less harmful to the environment, less harmful to the residents in the community, we would appreciate this. After all, this is God's country. God created this beautiful uh, land, this world, and uh, I believe for uh, business and, and and residents to live in harmony, to live in balance, and and that's all we're asking. Uh, that as we look to redevelop our communities, to to bring more infrastructure improvements, to bring more housing, uh, that uh, we can live in an area that's that's healthy and uh, safe for the folks that work, uh, not just the residents, but we've got businesses, we've got nonprofits, we've got schools, uh, we've got a vast array of entities in this area. So we just want to make sure that that we can have the, the safest and the healthiest uh, environment and community as possible. And I remember that council meeting where this uh, this pipeline was discussed, and I, I think it was Andre Allen who said it. I might be misremembering, but he said something to the effect of, you know, uh, we should be talking to the mayors of East Peoria and Bartonville and all these other communities so that, you know, collectively as a region, we can all kind of be on the same page. Uh, have those conversations happened? Not to my knowledge. And um, hopefully at some point as... The Peoria City Council has more discussions and debate, and we have more public meetings. Hopefully, we can take the lead in terms of uh, what we want other communities to convey. And and I and let me be clear, as I've said before, I'm not opposed to uh, 
a project, but I I would like uh, for companies to consider uh, safer ways. And if there's some way we can reach common ground in terms of uh, moving forward in this arena, I would be more than happy to see that. That was Peoria First District Council Member Denise Jackson talking to Tim Shelley about a carbon capture pipeline proposal. Thanks for choosing WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria, on this Monday. I'm Jody Holtz. The Pekin Community High School Volley for the Cure fundraiser reached a pinnacle this school year. The team record $27,169 raised for the Susan G. Komen Memorial was the most in the country for a high school volleyball team fundraiser for Komen and the most ever raised by a Central Illinois high school volleyball team for Komen. WCBU correspondent Steve Stein spoke with longtime Pekin volleyball coach Yvonne Thompson. We started started back in 2008. Um, we had a parent that was on our volleyball team that was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And um, the IHSA had come and done a correlation with the Susan G. Coleman Foundation and said, hey, um, would anybody like to raise funds? Well, since we had a parent that was diagnosed yeah. with breast cancer um, and she was part of the Susan G. Coleman, we decided uh, that we would host our first, first Volley for the Cure um, back in 2008. So we've been doing it for a few years. Why do you think it's been so successful through the years? Something, those kind of things start to come and go and then yeah. go, go off and back on again, but you've kept it going all these years. Well, um, on the first note, um, unfortunately it's impacting more of our student yeah. athletes, uh, yeah. players on our team, uh, with them being grandparents or aunts or, uh, mothers or can get into the mail also. So it's been an impact that way. Um, the reason one of the, why it's been so successful is because one of our, our community has really backed um, this cause for them. It's a great way for a girls volleyball team, 45 individuals uh, to be passionate about. And so I think because the community has supported us, parents, our parents are awesome. The team that we work with in another uh, Middleton school, hmm. they have backed it. Um, Has it been Morton all the time, or just no? It, every year we switch. We okay. try to um, incorporate every Middleton school. Okay. Um, do they, they they take part in this too? Don't they, they they take part in it yeah. too. Also, okay. yeah. yeah. Uh, we try to do it in October. So since we switch home and away each year, uh, we've kind of like just wanted it to be at our place, but we could host it at some some other places. Um, so every year we kind of switch who we're going to do it with on the Milani. Okay. Uh, have some people been involved with it through the years? Have I, have, I mean, uh, parents, other, you know, students, other coaches and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, Coach Delary. Yeah. yeah. Um, has always, she's our, she's our big, huge fundraiser. She's been with us a, a long time. Mm. Um, various businesses here in town of Pekin has supported us since day one of that. Okay. Um, because we get kids every four years going through the high school, yeah. you know, sometimes we have their parents. We had one parent that we had him, had her for eight years. Wow. So Did she have a kid on the team. She had a, she had two kids on the team, okay. and they all okay. came through. So, okay. um, just because they they know between Coach Deliria and myself and our whoever our other coaches are that this is something that we yeah. love to do and we take pride in it, 
people have backed us. Is it a hi- highlight of the season? I, I know the reason is not a highlight, but yeah, is is is, is, is it kind of a highlight of your season? Well, to, it's to it's, it's something on. that we can do off the court. Mm-hmm. Coaches always worry about what they can do on the court, win and loss record, and skill development. Yeah. We feel this is something that we can give back at. So this is how this is our big highlight off the court because we feel like the kids are winning no matter what the yeah. total is at the end of the year. Uh, the kids have given back. Speaking of totals, yeah. <laughs> you have the list of yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, we we shoot, we aim high for try to better ourselves each year. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, this last year we raised twenty seven thousand one hundred sixty nine dollars and seventy three cents. Um, so out of all the years, it, we raised over about two hundred twenty five thousand wow. wow. dollars since we started. I noticed a big jump there from 11 to 14 to 19. What what caused that big jump? Did you... We changed up every year. We add some things into it and okay. we take some things away depending on the okay. year that we have. Um, between doing silent auction items, we spike people's yards. Oh, um, yeah, we have, we've had different eat out nights. Um, so depending on the year and the group of parents that come in, the community, committee kind of brainstorms on new ways to do it so have there been any staples through the years or you've done it every year because they're just they just work it it the silent auction thing works for us um i think our gift baskets are about 125 gift baskets that people donated and so that that works Uh, we do a large raffle that we know five items Mm -hmm. um companies around the area have always donated said hey i'll give you that large raffle item um, and a bake sale, you know, everybody yeah. loves a bake sale, the t-shirts, we sell t-shirts every year. It's yeah. kind of our thing that a pink t-shirt comes through and kids are wearing Volley for the Cure and the Pekin and Morton area or wherever. So number one in the country and the most ever raised by a central Illinois high school. That's pretty cool. That, that, that is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty cool to get that phone. This call. is among the Coleman ones. Yeah. Uh, yes. They're on the yeah. Susan G. Coleman. Yes. Yeah. Cause there's various ones out there. Yeah. No. Um, that was pretty cool when she called us and said, hey, let me check around, but let me see that you're the number one in the nation. And, you know, that's something to be very, very proud of. I mean, um, but we couldn't do that without the support of all of our parents and community around us. That was Pekin Volleyball coach Yvonne Thompson speaking to WCBU correspondent Steve Stein. You're listening to 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. This is All Things Peoria. I'm Jody Holtz. Robert Greene Ingersoll, the renowned 19th century orator and politician, also known as the great agnostic for his religious views, called Peoria home for much of his life. Ingersoll was the focus of historian Justin Clark's graduate research. He told WCBU correspondent Steve Tarter about Ingersoll's relationship with socialist Eugene V. Debs. Um, Robert Ingersoll, um, for those who don't know, um, was sort of one of Peoria's uh, you know, most famous uh, figures who lived there for a very, very long time, um, was known as the great agnostic. He was a um, politician, he was an orator, he was a lawyer, and he was sort of, uh, you know, kind of like the Christopher Hitchens of his day. He was very <laughs> critical of religion and gave speeches across the country um, criticizing religion and the Bible and Christianity. And he was second really only to Mark Twain um, by the end of the 19th 19- 19th century as the most famous public speaker in America. 
Um, and so he was very, very famous. And for over 20 years, he had a, a very close relationship with Eugene Debs, um, who was from Terre Haute, Indiana, and um, which is about 200, I think it's about a little less than 200 miles or so away from Peoria. And uh, Debs, of course, was the um, the uh, the head of sort of the, the golden age of American socialism in the early 20th century. He was a labor organizer and a multi-time presidential candidate. Um, and he ran for president uh, in 1920 while imprisoned as a political prisoner for speaking out against World War One and, and received nearly a million votes in that election. Wow. And he and Debs were very, very close. They first met in 1878. Um, uh, Debs had invited Ingersoll to come and speak to a local literary organization, very much like the one I spoke to um, in Peoria. And Ingersoll gave a talk in 1878. And that kind of started a friendship. Um, and over time, you could really get a sense both from Ingersoll's um, oratorical skills and his political ideas that he was an influence on Debs. Um, was was Debs a, an outstanding orator as well? Absolutely, yeah. And, and in many ways, he actually credits his friendship um, to, to Ingersoll as one of the big influences on his being a very successful orator. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, he was he uh, Debs was one of the most famous public speakers in America. Spoke to thousands upon thousands of people um, as head of the um, the American Socialist Party and um, as a presidential candidate and labor organizer. And the Americans, we're talking about, of course, another era here. But yep, the America, the socialism didn't have the stigma. It did it. Oh, yeah. I'll let you tell me. Uh, yeah. At so, that time that, that it does now, it seems like. Yeah. So the golden age of American socialism, as described by historian Daniel Bell, is usually about 1902 to 1912, um, even though Debs was pretty active within the socialist and labor movement till his death in 1926. Um, but basically from, you know, the early you know, 1900s up until the, the mid to late 1930s, there was a huge uh, resurgence of left political activity in the United States. You had the American Socialist Party. Eventually, you would have the American <laughs> Communist Party, which was founded in 1919. Um, and, um, and some of these would run presidential candidates. And in 1912, Debs won a million votes, nearly a million votes in that election. Um, for those of you who are presidential history buffs, 1912 is kind of a special year because that was the year that Theodore Roosevelt decided to run for an unprecedented third term on the Progressive Party or the Bull Moose Party, splitting the Republican Party ticket between him and the incumbent William Howard Taft, which led to the election of Democrat Woodrow Wilson. Um, and then, of course, in 1920, Debs runs again. Um, socialism certainly had more of a stigma by the time you get into American involvement in World War One. Um, but there had always been, um, you know, sort of uh, political um, persecution of left po politics and left politicians, um, whether it was um, the the um, the near murder of of uh, Henry Clay Frick at the um, at one of the uh, the the steel plants that was owned by Andrew Carnegie, um, by an anarchist named Alexander Berkman, who was an associate um, of Emma Goldman, who was also a very prominent anarchist. Um, she, for her, uh, and then of course, in 1901, um, President William McKinley was killed by an anarchist, a man named uh, Anton Chugosh. So, you know, there was always this sort of left-wing political agitation in the country, and it always kind of had somewhat of a stigma but there were more people involved 
back then than say today. So for example, in, on the modern left today, you know, probably the largest socialist organization in the United States is the Democratic Socialists of America, or the DSA. And they have about 100,000 members. Um, and that's pretty large. Um, and, and I think especially uh, due to um, the, uh, the presidential candidacies of Bernie Sanders, the senator from Vermont, socialism mm-hmm. has certainly had much more of an uptick these days. Um, but pre, you know, but there, people sort of think that there was a red scare in the 40s and 50s, and there absolutely was. But there was also another red scare in the late 19-teens, early 1920s, especially after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 and the emergence of the Soviet Union. Um, I hope I'm not talking around on this a little bit, but long story short, um, I think that more people were certainly involved in the socialist movement 100 years ago um, than they are today, um, but there was always kind of a stigma around it. We're talking with uh, Justin Clark, a public historian from the Indiana Historical Bureau. Uh, Justin, what drew you to Ingersoll? I got interested in learning about Robert Ingersoll when I was um, an undergrad. I just thought he was this fascinating character who was beloved by many. And like I said, was, you know, next to Mark Twain, the most famous public speaker in America in the late 19th, 19th century and was largely sort of forgotten. Um, people have often described him as the most famous American you've never heard of. So I just found Ingersoll to be this like immensely fascinating figure. And one thing that I had found in the literature was that they hadn't, there hadn't really been a good study about his influence on the Midwest and what being a Midwesterner sort of played into his, um, his own development as a politician, as a lawyer, and as a sort of iconoclastic religious thinker. And so I started to look in his research and I found a ton of really interesting things. I wrote about uh, another sort of Illinoisan, to a certain extent, uh, the evangelical preacher Dwight Moody. Um, who is kind of the one of the progenitors of the modern evangelistic movement in the United States. And they're sort of very public debates, although they never they were never in the same place to do a formal debate. But what they would do is Moody would go to a town and speak about religion or speak about Christianity. And then Ingersoll would come in that town the next day or after and basically say, like, you know, <laughs> Moody's full of it. And they kind of went back and forth for many years. Postmark Peoria is a co-production of WCBU and Mike Sable. If you want even more stories about Peoria history, you can subscribe to the Postmark Peoria podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or the NPR app. And that's all for today's episode of All Things Peoria from WCBU, a public service of Bradley University and Illinois State University. I'm Jody Holtz. Thanks for listening today. Story help came from Tim Shelley, Steve Stein and Steve Tarter. Samantha Hill produced this episode of All Things Peoria, which is made possible in part by the General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. For more information on these stories and more, you can find them at wcbu.org. And of course, you can subscribe to the All Things Peoria podcast that's on Apple, Spotify, Google, or the NPR app. This is 89.9 FM and wcbu.org, Peoria Public Radio, part of the NPR Network. Thank you.